This is Genesis 9.18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest brother had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Tagorma, the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havala, Sapta, Rama, and Septeca, the sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, I a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kela, and Reason between Nineveh and Kela, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pethrusim, Kesluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kephtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvodites, the Zamorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Laisha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hal, Gether, and Mash. 
Erpashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almodad, Shelah, Hazarmaveth, Jera, Hedorim, Uzel, Dikla, Obel, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havala, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations. And from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Well, this is our, our text this morning. And uh, we, uh, we've been looking this, this fall um, at uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So we have one more sermon left next week before Advent begins. Well, we've been looking at these first uh, several chapters of Genesis and asking one question. What is wrong with this world? We've been trying to identify various problems and find solutions in God's Word. And so today, we will discover that apart from God, we don't know where we belong. Let's first consider a uh, dysfunctional family and the dispersed tribes from our text. Dysfunctional family and dispersed tribes. Secondly, let's look at dysfunctional family and a new tribalism. That's what we're experiencing in our culture today. And finally, let's discover a new family that can bring an end to tribalism. Okay, so what is this passage about? It's essentially about a family, and it's about that family's descendants spreading on the earth. Now, of course, you may remember that Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives were spared the judgment in the ark. So the flood eliminated everybody from the earth except for Noah and his family. So the world has been cleansed. Wickedness has been punished. This is a, a fresh start for humanity. Noah is sort of a, a new Adam here who is uh, beginning a new life and beginning to work the soil just like Adam did and things are looking up for humanity. However, very quickly it is discovered that Noah brought into the ark not only his family, not only all the animals that God commanded him to bring, but also his own sinful heart. The world may have been cleansed by the flood, but Noah's heart remained sinful. Our passage, in many ways, is just an illustration how sinfulness is played out in family and national dynamics. Now, on the family level, what we see here is that um, we see a father fail, and we see a son rebel. The story, of course, is as old as, as the world. Noah gets drunk, lays around naked in his tent, Ham, one of his sons, sees him, takes this opportunity to mock his father, to humiliate him, to share this embarrassing news with his brothers. Shem and Japheth are better sons. They, they don't want to participate in, in their father's shame, and so they, 
cover him up very carefully as not to see his nakedness at all. And then when Noah sobers up and wakes up, he curses Ham. Actually, he curses Ham's son, Canaan, and thus perpetuating this kind of family dysfunction. For a modern reader like myself, like most of you, we have many questions to this passage, don't we? Uh, for example, what did Ham do that was so awful? Uh, why did Noah curse Canaan and not Ham? How can one person sin let let all these nations be be affected by it? But I think these questions betray our own worldview, our own individualistic modern worldview. In a ancient culture, in an ancient Near Eastern culture, in the traditional cultures of today, many cultures still operate this way. The point was not the individual, the point was family. In an honor-shame culture that prizes each person's contribution to the family, to, to the clan, to the community, Ham's sin is certainly worthy of a curse. And the curse itself actually matches the sin because it affects his family for generations to come. So it's not just a curse on Ham as an individual, it's a curse on Ham's family through Canaan and his descendants. I believe that for us to really understand this passage, we need to use the lens of traditional, honor-based, uh, communal culture. Noah brings shame to his family by his drunkenness, by his nakedness, by exposing himself. Ham takes this opportunity to compound that shame by making fun of his father. Shem and Japheth cover up Noah's shame for the sake of the family. And in an attempt to restore the family's honor, Noah punishes him in the way that would really hurt him by humiliating his son Canaan. I think that's how this passage ought to be read. Um, this makes sense in a traditional setting, in, a, in an honor type setting, in a family setting, and it just doesn't make sense to us because we have placed the individual at the center. Now, when we get to the next chapter, we find that families now produce tribes and nations, and that the health of the nations actually is connected to the health of the families. One family's dysfunction sets the course for many nations over many generations. Now, it's interesting that many of these nations are called after people's names, after individual names. So Eber, for example, this is Genesis 10.25, becomes the father of the Hebrew people. That's where Hebrew, the word Hebrew, comes from. It's from Eber. You have Egypt, of course, then from him the Egyptian civilization comes. There are also many familiar names on this list of nations. Uh, a careful Bible, leader, Bible reader notices such places as, as Babel and Nineveh and Sodom and Gomorrah. Those were all important places in the rest of the Bible. They're important cities in the history of God's people. And then you have such tribes as the Philistines and the Canaanites, the historic enemies of Israel. And so what this chapter really does for us, it connects individual sin with corporate consequences. It connects 
family dysfunction with tribalism and na national dysfunction. It it shows us gives us a preview of of tribal conflicts and national crises over the next many hundred years. Now, a modern reader here, like myself, like many of you, is tempted to say, well, this is just an example of this kind of backward culture that is stuck in generational vendettas and honor killings and oppressive patriarchy. Aren't you glad that we have thrown off the shackles of this traditional way of thinking and living? Aren't we better off prioritizing the individual and not, not cursing generations? Isn't it better to blaze your own trail and not be beholden to your family's expectations? Haven't we had enough of controlling parents and stifling marriages, ethnic warfare, and imperialistic nationalism? Rod Dreher says, Here's the end point of modernity, the autonomous, freely choosing individual, finding meaning in no one but himself. Isn't that a better alternative to traditional family and clan-based way of life? Well, this is what we have pursued in the West for many years, several generations now. So let's consider if we are actually, in fact, better off. Let's talk about the new tribalism that um, is emerging, has emerged in the Western world that has rejected traditional approach to family and nationalism. I read a fascinating essay uh, this week, and I'll give you several really good quotes from it. It's written by, by Mary Eberstadt, and it is called The Fury of the Fatherless. Great name, The Fury of the Fatherless. Now, I may not agree with everything in it, of course, uh, but I found Eberstadt's thesis fascinating and, and her arguments quite compelling. Eberstadt looks at the unusually violent and uh, turbulent summer of 2020 and asks um, the question, why have so many young people of different races and economic backgrounds, but mostly young, have taken to the streets this year. So she acknowledges, of course, that police brutality, racism, politics, the pandemic, far-right and far-left organizations are all factors in this, in this violence, this rioting, this looting, this cultural conflict that we have experienced. But she says these are um, these are all reasons and opportunities for what happened. Uh, they have to do with the demand side of the issue. It created a, an, an opening for this to develop. But what about the supply side, she asks? Why are so many people today, unlike in any other time, are ready to engage in what feels like tribal warfare? Now here's what Eberstadt suggests. She says, so here's a new theory. The explosive events of 2020 are but the latest eruption along a fault line running through our already unstable lives. That eruption exposes the threefold crisis 
of filial attachment that has beset the Western world for more than half a century. Deprived of a father, lowercase f, father, uppercase f, and patrium, which is just a name for country and our attachment to, to our country, a critical mass of humanity has become socially dysfunctional on a scale not seen before. Now, she's making a case that the current cultural volatility is a consequence of our society's experience of fatherlessness. Now, she defines fatherlessness in three ways. There are three aspects in her mind. One is the actual absence of fathers in the home. And many kids today growing up in broken homes and dysfunctional families, many, many more than, than before. And these statistics are, are only rising, it seems. Then there's the religious fatherlessness, the rejection of religion, the rejection of God as a father figure, as the kind of sort of the cosmic father that gives us direction. And then there's the rejection of um, kind of the national identity, the pat patrium, which, which is our identity as sons and daughters of a particular country and a particular nation. And so we're dealing with young people who grew up in dysfunctional homes, who have rejected the stabilizing influence of religion, and who find themselves at odds with their own country. I think it's a compelling argument that some of what we're seeing, at least at the level of dysfunction that we're seeing in our culture, maybe it could be explained by this loss of earthly fathers, loss of the idea of the Heavenly Father in religion, and loss of our connection to our own nation. Well, let me give you a few quotes from the essay, and, and please, if you want to read it, um, it's, I think it's a helpful read. Um, she says, The frantic flight to collective political identities has primordial, not transient, origins. The riots are, at least in part, a visible consequence of the largely invisible crisis of Western paternity. Here's another quote. Fatherlessness leads to a search for father substitutes. And some of these daddy placeholders turn out to be toxic. Hard to disagree with that. Here's another quote. What is happening to America is an excruciatingly painful truth. That life without father, lowercase, father, uppercase, and filial piety toward country are not the socially neutral options that contemporary liberalism holds them to be. The sinkhole into which all three have collapsed is now a public hazard. The threefold crisis of paternity is depriving many young people, especially young men, of reasons to live as rational and productive citizens. And towards the end of the essay, the author says that the triply disenfranchised children of the West have achieved critical mass. They have slipped the surly bonds of their atomized childhoods. They have found their fellow raging sufferers and formed online families. And they have burst as a destructive force onto the national consciousness en masse, left and right, as never before. Now, as I read this essay this week, I wondered, is it possible 
that the explanation, or at least one of the main explanations for our new tribalism, this escalating aggression toward those we disagree with, this ideological and sometimes actual warfare, this polarization and refusal to even listen to each other, is it possible that one of the main explanations for all of this is the loss of family and how family life typically shapes an individual? Is it possible that both the far left and the far right exhibit the same wounds of fatherlessness and detachment from father, lowercase, father, uppercase, and patron. It, it, it's interesting that, you know, the more you think about it, the more you realize that our desire to throw off the shackles of oppressive patriarchy and and our our disdain for for traditionalism and honor culture and uh, you know being shaped by other people has actually led us to a place where we are so detached that we're not able to function together. And so we're looking for new tribes, for new attachments. We're looking for new fathers. We're looking for new meaning. And we find it often in this new political and social tribalism that exhibits itself online and then on the streets. James K. Smith again said, Late capitalism is the age in which everyone has a computer in the pocket and a gaping hole where a father should be. Late capitalism is the age in which everyone has a computer in the pocket and a gaping hole where a father should be. Now we live today in the West in the era of open rebellion and rejection of everything traditional and religious. We do not want to be defined by others. We want to define ourselves. But has it brought us closer to happiness? Is the alternative really better? Having lost the attachment to family or ethnicity or country, we have found new tribes and new families and new surrogate fathers. And yet, I believe we still have not figured out where we belong. Okay, so if the kind of the right-sided approach of traditional family-based culture, if we say that it breeds oppression, generational conflict, and imperialism, and if the new tribalism, kind of the left approach of our time, is, is proving to be just as exclusionary and, and violent, what are we to do? You know, how, how do we fix it? Um, well, we, we can't. We can't fix it. Noah could not get rid of the sin in his heart, and it affected his whole family and the nations that came from it. And so we cannot figure out on our own where we really belong, where we can really flourish, where we can serve others and not oppress them, where we can contribute to the common good and unity and not cause division and discord. We can't help ourselves, but God, God can. And God must help us if there is any hope for this world. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
God promises a new kind of community. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says, But you, addressing the Christian, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Participation in this new community is, is by God's grace. Notice the language that Peter is using. We're, we're called, we're, we're chosen, we're given mercy. We're made into a people. And what is remarkable about this new community that, that God is making right now, He's putting it together in our time, using us, using Christians that believe in the gospel, the remarkable thing about this new community is that it includes all nations and tribes. The gospel gathers the dispersed nations of Genesis 10. Listen to Colossians 3, verse 11. Here, meaning in the church, in this new community, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The church is the community that includes, in fact, insists on including all nations and tribes and languages and cultures. They are included on equal footing, since all are welcomed by grace. None of this is deserved. We're, we're summoned, we're called, we're chosen, we're brought in to God's family. And because we're, we're all welcomed by grace, we're, we're all equal. There's no superiority or inferiority among the nations, cultures, tribes, and individuals. However, our distinct characteristics are not obliterated. It's amazing that the New Testament never says, well, you used to be Greek and now you're a Christian, or you used to be Hebrew and now you're a Christian, or you used to speak this language and now you need to speak a different language. New Testament doesn't say that. It welcomes all these different people into a new community of faith. Their distinctive cultural traits and even individual traits are maintained, and yet they are welcome into this new family and a new community. We're united in Christ, but we are, are still different nations and cultures and individuals. And this is how it's been from, from the beginning. Uh, one uh, early church historian says, The Jesus movement was initially one among a number of Jewish religious options in the Roman, in the, in, of the Roman era. Rather quickly, however, the Jesus movement became translocal and trans-ethnic, meaning that it wasn't limited to a particular location. There was no center for Christianity. And it was not limited to a particular ethnic or linguistic group. Now, this was very unusual in the Roman world, and I think it's still unusual in our world today. Religions back then were ethnic and local. They were part of the tribalism of the day. If you were Persian, you believed and worshipped a certain way. If you were Greek, you believed and worshipped a certain way. If you spoke Latin, you worshipped a certain way. However, Christianity has been challenging this kind of tribalism ever since the beginning. Christian hearts have been captured by the vision 
um, that we find in passages like Revelation 7, 9 and 12. Let me read it to you. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. There's this vision of heavenly worship, including all the different tribes and languages and clans and cultures and individuals, even including heavenly tribes. And they all gather to proclaim that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Meaning what? Salvation is by grace. We're welcomed because God has welcomed us, because the Lamb was slain, and by His blood we have been cleansed and brought into God's community. Now this is the kind of vision of tribes united by the experience of God's grace in Christ that I think can help our culture today. So instead of retreating into nationalism, into ideological tribalism, into the fury of the fatherless, the Christian church needs to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The Christian church is to model inclusion of many tribes under the banner of Christ, including many political tribes. The Christian church is to become a home, a family for the fatherless. Now, I think this is a, a key point. It's not just a community of tribes, but it is a family of orphans. We've been adopted into God's family, and that's where our unity lies. This is where our experience that allows us, experience of grace that allows us now to, to fight the tribalism that we see begins. See the connection between uh, the adoption, the belonging to God's family, and the end of tribalism in Galatians 3, 26, 27, and 28. Galatians 3, 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This, this is an amazing statement. No matter who you are, no matter what tribe you come from, no matter what dysfunctional family you come from, in Christ you're all sons of God through faith. Meaning that anybody who believes in Jesus is now part of God's family. There's a place in Scripture that calls the church the church of the firstborn. Meaning that every person who belongs to the church, who belongs to this new family, new community, is treated by God as a firstborn child with all the privileges and rights that that entails. Paul goes on to say in Galatians 3, 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. God sees us in Christ, covered by Him. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It is in our adoption into God's family through Christ that we find the end of tribalism, the end of exclusion, the end of oppression, the end of 
dysfunction, if the gospel is properly understood and properly applied, it means the end of tribalism. We can no longer exclude. We can no longer oppress. We can no longer be dysfunctional. J.A. Packer says, What is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. In Christ, we are adopted into God's family. Jesus came to save us from the individual and communal dysfunction caused by sin. The water of the flood could not cleanse Noah's heart, but Christ's blood can. Jesus came to fulfill all obligations of sons to fathers so that we can be accepted into God's family. Jesus came to take the consequences of all our rebellion and disobedience so that we can be welcomed into God's home. Now, this adoption is by grace. It's undeserved. Our God is a Father who chooses to bless instead of curse, to include instead of exclude, to accept instead of reject. This is the hope for the fatherless caught up in tribal chaos and violence. Let me quote James K. Smith again. He says, Every child Every child looking for an absent, distant father is on the road to cover up a deeper desire that such a father would come looking for them, that the arrow of hunger would be reversed and the father would return. Because then we would know he was thinking about us, looking for us, loving us. What to make of this father hunger than a deep longing to be seen and known by the one who made us? This is at the core of our need. We need our Father. We need the right family. We need the right community where we can be loved and seen and known. Smith goes on to say, At the heart of the madness of the gospel is an almost unbelievable mystery that speaks to a deep human hunger only intensified by a generation of broken homes to be seen and known and loved by a father. Maybe navigating the tragedy and heartbreak of this fallen world is realizing this hunger might not be met by the ones we expect or hope will come looking for us. But then meeting a father who adopts you, who chooses you, who sees you a long way off and comes running and says, I've been waiting for you. As a child of divorce, as a, as a young man who grew up without a father, as a person who, who is attracted to the new tribalism, I have found salvation in Christ. And I have found that the father I have longed for, that the father that I had hoped was looking for me and was loving me and was thinking of me actually exists. God himself is this father who loves us, is this father who wants to adopt us into his home, is the father whose son died and rose for us. So do you know God as father through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Have you been adopted into God's family by grace? Do you know where you belong? 
It's in God's home. It's in his family. It's in Christ. And it's in the new community that he is shaping even now in this fallen world and that will blossom in eternity into one that comprises all sorts of nations and cultures and languages and tribes and individuals all united in Christ and under Christ. If this is you, if you're part of God's family, if you are part of this new community, this is what Jesus commands in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. So listen, this is for you. If you're part of God's family, if you're part of God's community, this is what you ought to be doing. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age.